We've been, um, we've been looking through every Sunday, really, from Genesis through to Revelation, uh, looking at the, the gospel sort of from different angles and really enjoying the beauty and the richness of it. I hope it's been a blessing to you, and um, hope, hopefully, it's just um, galvanized your imagination around the gospel and around um, the many, many different threads and strands that make up this incredible good news of Jesus Christ. So, um, today's subject is called Freedom and Slavery. It's quite a big deal. Um, f- freedom is a freedom's a very emotive subject. Um, freedom of expression. When you hear about a man nailing his scrotum to the ground in Red Square because of the attitudes towards homosexuality in Russia. You, be, you begin to realise that things like freedom of expression are a big deal to people. Regardless of what you think about the subject or the topic itself, the issue of freedom arouses very strong feelings. Very strong feelings. Freedom of speech, the right to vote, freedom to have a say. People have killed and people have died in the name of freedom. So it's a really big deal. I would also say that it's... Uh, uh, very deeply in our national kind of psyche, speaking to those of us for a moment who would call themselves British, it's a really big deal. Many of us would have family members who lost their lives in one of the world wars in the name of freedom. If we look back at our own political history, many different moves and waves of different things have gone on in the name of freedom. It's it's a, it's a big deal, and actually a lot of, a lot of the uh, heat in debates and conversations politically you find uh, today is rooted in this idea and subject of freedom. We react fiercely to anything the opposite of freedom, anything that comes across restrictive, oppressive. There's a very fierce negative reaction to that. The freedom of the individual is something we are particularly concerned with in the western part of the world. If you're not from uh, what is known as the western part of the world, there are certain countries that are not actually in the west, but are culturally more western. Um, But cultures that are typically more eastern tend to be more corporate in their thinking, tend to think more we than I. The west, the the self is sovereign. And so individual freedoms is again a really, really big deal. So we want to look at today, what does the Bible, what does the gospel say about freedom? And let our minds be informed and renewed, let our hearts be uh, quickened with with this amazing subject. It's really beautiful. So I'm going to pray and ask God to help me in it. And um, please, as I'm praying, please pray yourselves and just ask God to help you. Because I think it could be one of those, it could be one of those subjects where for many of us it's, it's actually a bit challenging. Culturally, the gospel challenges our, our cult, different cultures in different ways. All of us would have something in our culture that probably is quite godly, looks, looks quite godly and just. And uh, others of us have, and then we'd all have elements that are kind of neutral. And we'd all have elements of our culture which are not really gospel, they're not kingdom, they're, they're anti that. And particularly when it comes to this whole idea of freedom, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's actually quite a minefield, quite complex because um, the Bible speaks a lot about freedom and very, very positively, but not always in the way that we would use the word. So we need a lot of wisdom from God to help us really pull the things apart and see what's what. And um, so, Father, we do pray for your help. 
thank you that we are, you are the reality with whom we have to do. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Lord. It's not about us trying to make some things happen. You are the reality before us. We find ourselves alive and conscious in this world, on this planet, in this creation that you have made. And um, by your grace, Lord, you help us make sense of it. You help us to understand it. And we thank you that we, we, we have a creator who promises to come to us that we might have life in all its fullness. And Lord, that's a big deal that we... Thank you that you, you say things like that to us, to, to assure our hearts, to keep us, Lord, in our sinfulness from running away, but to, to draw us to you. And I, I do pray, Lord, as we look at this subject, help us. All of us will need help in different ways, so please help us to see uh, the wood for the trees, um, keep us from misunderstandings, help me in my communication to be clear. Help us sail very close to the scriptures, Lord, that it's not just the airing of opinions. It's a declaration of the word of God, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start, as we always do, a creation, uh, back to the garden. And um, uh, what we see in the Garden of Eden is an environment of freedom, very much, with with prohibition. So, if we just look at the first slide here, uh, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it you shall surely die. It's really, really important. We looked at this last week, in a, but coming from a different angle. We really want you in this passage today to just see the sense of freedom. That, that, that what Adam is given here is a very, very broad place. It's not a restrictive remit. It's not a remit that's really narrow. There's not a load of laws and rules. It's not, it's not full of complicated, bureaucratic detail. It doesn't leave Adam thinking, how am I going to do this? You know, oh, oh no, oh, uh, it's not like that. Eat from any tree. There's a real sense of liberality, generosity, um, uh, spaciousness. This is the heart of God. God loves this kind of freedom. But there is this prohibition just from that tree, don't eat of it, for in the day you eat of it you'll surely die. Now I would say this, the fact that there is a prohibition in there increases the freedom because it brings freedom of choice into the mix as well. Okay? So now it's not just the freedom to run around, it's also freedom to make some decisions. Um, am I going to trust God or not? Does he know best or does someone else or do I? And so even, in the, even with the prohibition actually increases um, the sense of freedom. You now have the freedom to choose between this and this. And an essential part of being human is that we have the freedom to choose between this and this. And we do it every day, countless times. And so we need to understand that is, that is in, in the fabric of what it is to be human under God's wisdom. Without freedom of choice... There's no love. Sometimes people say, why did God do that? Why put a tree there that he's not allowed to eat? Why? Because if God creates a context of choice, then these people learn how to love him. Without choice, there isn't really any love. There can be. Love can't be imposed. If, you, if, I, try, if I force someone to love me, imagine that, love me. They're not going to love me, are they? They might do what I say because they're scared of me. They might feel intimidated or nervous and anxious, so they begin behaving a certain way. Well, it should keep him happy. But that's the furthest thing from love. Love can't be imposed by its very nature. Um, it instantly becomes something else as soon as the choice is gone. God is love. We heard it earlier. God is about love. The chief mark of mankind's relationship to God is to be love. And so, 
The scene is being set here for freedom, but there's prohibition which creates choice, which really choice is, creates a wonderful context for love to grow. So that's what we see going on here in the garden. And so they use their freedom to cross the line. Satan comes and says, no, 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 you want, you've got some freedom, you want real freedom, you've got, to, you've got to go for this tree you're not allowed to eat, because then you'll be like God. You see, God is the only truly free agent. I mean, if you just meditate on the nature of God for just a moment, that, that he is not under anyone's jurisdiction or authority. There's no, if he wants to do something, he doesn't have to go through like a, like a, a board, you know, like a council, or just bounce it off some guys, make sure I'm seeing it right. He does what he likes. Absolute sovereign freedom. It's a good job he's good, isn't it? Because <laughs> he has absolute sovereign freedom. There's no one above him. The Bible says he does what he wants um, with the host of heaven, all the angelic, mysterious creatures, seraphim, cherubim, the host of heaven, the, you know, the archangels. He does what he likes with the host of heaven, Daniel 4, and with the inhabitants of the earth. That's what he wants. Utter freedom. Total sovereignty. Satan says, we just like him. You have real freedom. And so Eve is deceived and... Um, takes the fruit and eats it and passes it to Adam who was there the whole time who was just, just followed passively and ate the fruit and then there's this nasty moment where everything comes out of kilter starting with their relationship with God and with one another and creation and God pronounces his judgment and what we see happening in the very early chapters of Genesis we look at two instances from Genesis 4 is that we see that they actually as they use their freedom to cross the line in doing so they become slaves and a, new, a brand new dynamic kicks in that they've not experienced before, which could very much be described as slavery. Um, first situation, Cain and Abel. Let's read the story of Cain and Abel. Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. So we've got two brothers, Cain and Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought to the first of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portion. So they're bringing an offering to the Lord. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now this is really important. Listen to what God says to Cain. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It's really important there, because that word there, its desire for you, is, it has uh, it, it, the implication behind it is desire to rule. That's the implication behind it. Sin's desire is to rule over you, but you must rule over it. Cain's response, Cain spoke to his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And so what we see is that Cain has become a slave to sin. Sin has mastered him. Sin wanted to master him, and sin did. He didn't master it. So we see, okay, this is quite a terrible thing, leads to the murder of his own brother. And then we get a guy called uh, Lamech, and uh, he, he says this. Uh, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. He's a real charmer. Listen to what I say. <laughs> hey, ladies, wouldn't you would love to have this guy? I've killed a man for wounding me. He was on a date night. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Don't mess with Lamech is the bottom line. Uh, Listen to this guy. He's obviously a bit of a big, strong, tough guy by all accounts. And uh, he's got the freedom to throw his weight around. And yet what we see here is that um, he's governed by a malicious heart. 
it looks really free. He can throw his right man and do his thing and have his revenge. But you, what's going on there? The man's heart has been mastered by sin. He's a slave. And so this is really what we see, and it just it goes on and it gets worse and it just gets worse, and in the end it gets to the to the flood. The only way to stop the violence, um, which is a destructive use of freedom, the earth's filled with violence. It says this about just before the flood, Genesis 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, every intention of the thoughts of his heart, only evil continually, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved into his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry I've made them. God moves in destruction against those who are destroying his creation. God's destruction is always against destructiveness. God's destruction is always to preserve. It's never to just destroy for the sake of it. It's to, dest- it's to bring an end to the destruction. And so we see this is, this is where it gets to. This is humanity under sin. This is the ugliness of what it is to move away from God, make a leap for the throne, go for autonomy, which ba- autonomy means um, I do my thing. I do it my way. I enjoy the, in quotes, freedom of that. And that's what we get, that's where it gets to. God ends up destroying that which threatens his creation. A few descendants on from Noah, who along with his family survived the flood by God's grace. We get Abraham, the first of the patriarchs, and uh, he has Isaac and then Jacob. And what we see about these patriarchs is very interesting, and it's one of those hold those thought moments. We see these men that God apprehends and he begins to make promises to them. At this point, there's no Ten Commandments, there's no, no law of Moses, you don't have Leviticus with all the rules and all the laws. It's actually a very, very blank canvas, but God simply makes promises to them, and they believe the promise, and their whole life is governed by that. Really important point. We'll come back to it later in the message, okay? But we need to see that. That's how it works with the patriarchs. God makes promises and they believe God and they order their whole life in line of the fact that God has made these promises to us. And that's what directs their lives more than rules and laws as such. It's a relationship of response, faith response to the promises of God. It's, it's the trust of God. Um, then we get Moses and through Moses comes the law. Everything we're familiar with in the Old Testament and really this law is brought to kind of hem them in to restrain the power of sin in their heart and keep them from kind of going wild. But also it's, it's, it's given to help them realise and understand their sinfulness. They, you know, you realise, you know, don't touch the grass all, you know, oh, I wonder what that we like. You know, when you get given a law, something in your heart wants to move against it for many, demonstrates something of that sinful rebellion. And what it does, the whole idea, the main highest purpose of the law, if you like, was to lead the people of Israel to a point where they realise they need a saviour, to lead them to Christ, lead them to a place of faith, centuries on. But there are other purposes for it also. And I want to draw this out, because again, this is a wonderful and a beautiful thing. King David, one of the most wonderful Israelite kings, the way he talks about the law of God is very intriguing. Psalm 119 full of these wonderful statements about the laws. Listen to how he talks about my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Wow. That's interesting. That's scripture. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counsellors. I will run. Sounds like freedom to me. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. I'll walk in a wide place for I've sought your precepts. That's interesting, isn't it? I've sought your ways and as a result of that, I'll walk in a wide place. And what we see here actually is something David kind of 
points to, there's something about David in the power of the Holy Spirit that points to a new covenant life, that points to a Christian life, points to a spirit-filled life. And what we see, it's like these laws have been written on his heart and he, he just loves and delights in them. But as a result, he's saying, I'm running in a wide place. And really, the, the, what, what we have introduced to in this beautiful psalm is this picture of the blessing of the life lived under the restrictions set by a loving father. I'll say that again. The blessing of a life lived under the restrictions of a loving father. It's a really important principle here. If I took my children when they were really, really young and just sort of plopped them somewhere in the middle of a field where there really wasn't any kind of anything to really mark anything out and just see her went off or even just kind of stood there with them, they would, it would probably be a little bit... What do I, how do I, and is it, oh yeah, yeah, there's a cliff over there, but don't know about that. <laughs> Anyone ever done cliffs with kids before? <laughs> with a beachy head. Anyone done beachy head before? It's terrifying. We all lie down on our bellies and cooled along to the edge and looked over, and I'm not good with heights anyway. So at that point, I start trying to grab them, even though they're as scared as me. I imagine trying flinging them. Oh, stop. It's, it's scary, scary stuff. Well, actually, you know, spiritually, there's a load of cliffs around. There's a load of cliffs around. There's a load of ditches. There's a load of holes. There's a load of things that if we, we could easily fall into and, and come to destruction. But you put a child in a situation where there's uh, like that, it's, just, it's not a blessing at all. If you take a child to a swing park, we've got a nice green and orange, lovely shaped fences around there and some slides and, and, and climbing frames, they're off. And they feel safe and they're having a wonderful time. They're not saying on these stupid fences. They're enjoying the slides and the climbing frames and the fun and it feels safe and it's wonderful. You see something like this with David, he's saying, you know, through your precepts, I'm running wide. It's challenging. When you hold it up against off and our desire to do exactly what I want. Well, hold that thought to Israel as a nation failed miserably. Psalm 107 says this. says, Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and irons, for they'd rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. And really, although it's talking about some particular people, that really is the story of Israel. They spurned his counsel. Time and again, God called them to do things that weren't very fashionable, you know? Just worship me. But all these other nations have loads of different gods and they, they sort of mix and match and have all kinds of, all kinds of fun. God says, you do that, it's going to kill you. But they did it. They did it. And they wanted to just be like everyone else. They didn't want to be God's holy, different people. And they, that's how they acted. And in, in, in a sense, they, they just became totally enslaved. Completely enslaved to things that ended up ruling over them. These things that promised so much freedom led them into slavery. And in the end, God has to just deal with them. God, God, God t- removes their freedom. He gave them this wonderful, beautiful land, wonderful borders, beautiful flowing of milk and honey. In the end, he totally removes them from that and just puts them under the oppressive rulership of first Assyrians for the north, then Babylonians for the south. And as the, as the centuries go on, it's, then it's the Persians, then it's the Greeks, then it's the Romans. And they're constantly under these tyrants, longing and waiting for their king to come to set them free. Even though when they had their freedom, they just used it to become enslaved again. But their king did come. Their king did come. Their Messiah did come. His name is Jesus. And this is where it just gets so stunningly beautiful. 
Because if you were to sum up the, the, the purpose of Jesus in a nutshell, if you'd say, Jesus, why have you come? In a nutshell, why have you come? This is what he'd say from Hebrews 10. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice, so he's, this is Christ referring to the Father. Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it's written of me in the scroll of the book. That's why Jesus came, to do the will of the Father. There it is. If you whittle the thing right down to its nub, Jesus, why have you come? To do the will of the Father. I want to ask you a question. Does that sound like freedom to you? If you were to define the free life, how would you define it? Jesus said it obedience. <laughs> obedience to my father. Staggering, really. Jesus is anything but autonomous. Anything but doing it his way. He really isn't. And yet, we see shalom. We see utter peace. We see rhythm. We see fullness of life. We see joy. We see resolve, courage. We see purity. Actually, all these things we'd really like to be. Huh, you see. What's your secret, Jesus? I've come to do your will, O oh God. Is that really your secret? I'll tell you what else you see in Jesus, and it's staggering. We see that he's not a slave either to the will of others or to his own sinful app- or own appetites. He's not a slave to either of those. He's not a slave to the will of others. There was one situation where Jesus went to a town and village, healed the sick brought liberty and rescue to the tormented. Word got around, and so from the other villages around, they bring the, the multitudes for healing. And uh, Jesus is off praying somewhere in, the, in a quiet place. Enters that town again, just about to enter it. His disciples come and they say, we've, we've been looking everywhere for you. There, there's masses of them here now. You, now you've got to come back and do what you did yesterday, but tenfold. Jesus is like, no, I'm going to go over there now. You can't, they've just... He says, I know why I've come. I know why I've come. Now just... I'm not, there may not be thousands of people pursuing you, okay? There's a principle here, though. When you sense others leaning on you to live like this, to do that now, to stop doing that now, and it comes and it leans on you. See, for many of us in that moment, the temptation to just crumble and to come under that is huge. Jesus is not a slave to that. So, so he's not Mr. Autonomous, he's not Mr. I'll do it my way, he's, he's Mr. I want to do your will. And yet in doing that, he's free from the slavery of the whims of other people and the opinions of others about who he should be or what he's just massive, what he should be like. So actually you look at you think, oh man, you've come through the will of the Father but your freedom is striking. And then not only, but he's also free from his own appetites, he's not a slave, to, he can fast for 40 days. He's not a slave to his own appetites, you see. He's got mastery over them. He enjoys the good things in life. He's accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. He's a, and a, and a party goer. I mean, you know, he, he's, he's not an athletic. He's not the guy in the bed of nails by any means. He's enjoying life. But he's not a slave to his own appetite. He's free. When the PA guy shrugs his shoulders. <laughs> Battery. Off and on. Day. Whoa. 
Ah, well, we're back. Maybe, maybe the most poignant thing that Jesus models for us is this. Is that, and this is, this is probably, if there's one thing I want you to hear today, it's this. For a human being, there's no such thing as absolute autonomy. It's impossible. You, we are all a slave to something. We're all a slave to something. We all have a master. So Jesus said you can't serve two masters. The assumption being, you will have one. But you can't have two. You end up doing the splits. It's very awkward. But you, but you will have one. You will have one. Jesus, the most free man to walk the planet, very clearly had a master, the Father. Come to do your will. That's what I'm here for. You, will, you do have one. Or two, or three, or four. We all do. And maybe that's the central point around freedom. We'll get to that when we get to new creation and application. I want to just look at the cross quickly, because that's probably the point where we see Jesus' submission to the Father's will at his most poignant. He's facing the cross, and um, if any of you here are really, really cool on Jesus being God, but really not sure about his humanity, just read this passage. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He's not pretending. Okay, this isn't Jesus pretending now. He is sorrowful and he's troubled. He said to them, my soul, this is Jesus sharing his heart, my soul is very sorrowful and troubled, sorry, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There it is. Not as I will. I'd really rather this, but I've come to do your will, O oh God. And he came to the disciples and found them asleep, and he said to Peter, so you couldn't watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. That is, that is the submission of Jesus at its most poignant. The most free man to have ever lived. He, he, there was a moment where he was torn. He was torn between the easy way and this really hard way. And in that moment, he said, your will be done. And the wonder of it is, is that we are in this room today as free men and women because of Jesus' submission. And I want you to feel in your heart the fruit of submission. The fruit of submission is millions, hundreds of millions, maybe billions of human beings rescued from the grip of sin and death. It's the fruit of that life. See, at the cross, where Jesus made himself obedient to death, he, under the, under, part of his coming to serve the will of the Father is that for, for a, a moment, if you like, he, the, the creator becomes obedient to death on a cross, the humiliation of it. Under its mastery, under its, you know, let, 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 let hell do its worst. And in that, in that, in those few hours of horror and degradation, he buys our freedom. And that's why we come and we, Hazel exalts us to celebrate at the start. Because there's freedom. 
In Christ there is freedom from sin because he paid our debt. See, so we are free. That's the gospel, isn't it? The gospel isn't Jesus paid it, so now we've got to pay it too. No, he's paid it and it's finished, so we come into the completed work of Christ on our behalf and enjoy the freedom of that. Absolutely. So we are free. So Jesus died to sin and died to the law on the cross. And so we, we through being joined with Jesus, have died to sin and have died to the law. We're no longer under the law, we're no longer under sin. So we're free people. If you're a born-again Christian, if you really do know Jesus, you are free. You're not under the law, you're not under the power of sin anymore. All that stuff, Cain and Abel and Lamech on his date night, all that nasty, ugly stuff, you've been released from that whole grip, that whole corrosive, uh, destructive nastiness in the heart. How? By, by God, through the work of Jesus on the cross, taking out your heart of stone and putting in your heart of flesh, which has the laws of God written on it. Yeah? So you're not under some commands on these stones anymore. No, but inside of you, what beats inside of you are these things. You, you, the stuff from Psalm 119 that David was saying, that is, the, that is the cry of the new heart. I can run wild, Lord, because I'm walking with you. And it's not, I'm not under the, the law. I'm not under that sort of thing. I mean, I never, as a Gentile, in one sense, I never was anyway. But in that sense, I'm not under that. I'm not under that. I'm under Christ. And Christ has brought that to its fulfilment. I'm not under the power and the rule of sin. That's why that song we sing, no longer a sinner but a saint. We're not saying that we don't have sin. Of course we have sin. As believers, we have indwelling sin. We always will have. But we're no longer slaves to it. So the pattern of our lives is no longer sinful. It's holy. Why? Because of the work of Jesus. He's given us a brand new heart. So we're saints now. You see, this is the glory of the gospel. It's all all what God has done. And so as part of the new creation, and the, at the resurrection, Jesus brings in this new, this new age, this age of the new creation that begins at Christ's resurrection. Through that point and in that moment, two main things happen to us. Firstly, we go from being a slave to sin, yes, to being free, but that freedom is marked by what? Slavery to righteousness. So when we dance around freedom songs, yeah, we should be singing and dancing just as much slavery songs. If you're not as excited, which it doesn't sound you are, about being a slave to righteousness as you are about freedom, you may not have understood your Christian freedom. You may not have understood it. Because what the freedom of the gospel does is it releases me now to be a slave to righteousness. I'm going to be a slave to one or the other. I can't live in limbo. I can't live in a vacuum. I'm either either under the impulse of sin or I'm under the impulse of righteousness. One of them is over me as my master. The freedom of Christ sets, sets me free to serve the righteous purposes of God. It's a bit like the, the, the slaves in the Hebrew times. When they were set free, under God's plan, you know, Jubilee and all the sitting free and all that sort of stuff, s- slaves had the choice to say, actually, no, I want to I stay with you. I love, I love belonging to you. And if that was the case, then they'd have their ear. They'd have the uh, hole put through their ear. And it would be, and, you know, on the plank, and it would be a sign, I'm, I'm, I give, I'm giving myself to you. That's, that's a wonderful picture of, of being a Christian. It doesn't hold up on every level, but it's a it's powerful kind of, there's some powerful parallels there. Obviously, it's a different master. But this Jesus sets me free. But then I say, Jesus, do you know what? Actually, you've set me free from the grip of sin and darkness. I want to be with you forever. I don't want to just now, thanks. See ya. No, because if I say thanks, see ya, what I end up doing is I go back to being under the grip of sin. <laughs> you see, it's futile. It's futile because that's where autonomy goes. 
Because autonomy, human autonomy, is satanic. <laughs> I mean, set free from that. Jesus, now I want to follow you. I want to serve righteousness. Do you see this? Yeah? I thought you might be getting excited, but okay, maybe I was just feeling optimistic. That's okay. Just to demonstrate from Romans 6, just so you understand. Don't you know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, your slaves are the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, by the way, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which he was committed and having been set free from sin hallelujah we become slaves of righteousness equal hallelujah oh not quite so loud there were you now I wonder why I wonder if partly it's this understanding of freedom that's a bit wonky that our understanding of freedom is I do what I want when I want no that's slavery that's called slavery to my sinful appetites Christian freedom is Jesus what you're saying I mean, powerful, isn't it? But quite, maybe a bit, oh, but that's what Christian freedom is. He's my Lord. Only through relationship with him and union with him can I walk in freedom. But it's real freedom. I love that Matt Redmond song, Surrounded, but I've never been so free. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's it. He's the king of freedom. It's a bit like, you know, the Lord of the Rings and all that sort of stuff, you know, but, you know, Aragorn's the king. I know it always is, I know that, but, I know it always is, I know. I saw the Hobbit yesterday, so I'm all, I'm all excited about that, but, Aragorn, right, it's, it's, you want him around, don't you? Do you know what I mean? You want him around. Because when he's not around, it's chaos. Am I right? Is there something, I've got my flies undone. I'm not joking. You know, everyone laughing. When Aragorn's not around, it's, it's chaos. It's destruction, it's violence, it's death, it's like, where's the king? Ah, here he is, he's amazing. He's not oppressive, he's not egotistical, he's generous, he's compassionate. Yeah, he's cool. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? He's a mighty warrior. He deals with all those people we're really scared of. Ah, he's the king, you see? And so that's, that is the, that's the idea of Christian freedom, you want to be around the king. But I want to take it one step further. Because not just slavery, I also want to just bring in the image of marriage. Not because marriage is slavery. But I'll tell you what marriage is. Marriage is a voluntary relinquishing of some elements of autonomy. Marriage is saying, I'm not going to just go out when I want anymore. I'm not going to just do my own thing anymore. Actually, I'm going to submit my life to you as you submit your life to me. And we're going to learn how to walk in step together. But that's going to mean, that's going to, you know, I'm going to voluntarily become incomplete without you. As a single person, I'm complete. But in, being, in becoming married, I'm going to voluntarily become incomplete without you. And you will, from this point on, become my other half. I'm only half without you. Yeah? And there's a giving up of autonomy in that. There is. If there isn't, then the marriage doesn't work. The marriage becomes a terrible place of tension and difficulty and estrangement in the end. Separate lives under the same roof. That's what marriage is. But interestingly, it's the, another analogy of our relationship with Jesus is marriage. Revelation 19. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Ah, that's interesting. 
It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What this is saying is this, the bride has made herself ready. How? She's understood, I'm a slave to righteousness. She's understood, I've been redeemed. I've not been saved by good works, but I've been saved for good works. Ephesians 2. I want to give myself to my Saviour. I'm going to give up my rights and just say, no, I want to be with you, Jesus. This is the idea, and it's a wonderful and it's a glorious thing. It really is. It's powerful. It's really, really powerful. So that's new creation, and I want to end there with just a little bit of application, then we're done. How do we apply these amazing bits? How do we bring them down and actually try to apply them to our lives? I will say this firstly. Another, well, by first means of application, the, the Bible describes the Christian life more, most commonly than ever as a race. It's a race. And this is what the Apostle Paul says about 1 Corinthians 9. He says, about, about, he says Don't you know, in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. Run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box like I'm beating the air. I discipline my body, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. He said there's rules in a race. You know that? And if you want the glory, you want the reward, you want to win, you've got to compete by the rules. You can't just whack someone out of their lane and then tread on that other person. When you cross the line, you're not going to get any reward. You're not operated by the rules. The rules are you stay in your lane. There's certain rules to the Christian life. It's not the Torah. It's not the Jewish law. It's not, you're not under, it's not. Hello. <laughs> Just someone's getting excited. It's okay. Sometimes it just breaks microphones and all, all kinds of things. <laughs> it's a joke, by the way. Uh, so, but there are, there's a sense of it, there's a race, and God says, run your race this way, run it in submission to Christ. Run it in submission to Christ. Obey Jesus. Jesus said that you obey my commands, love one another. As you are in the race according to the rules. I'm under the law of Christ, I'm under his lordship. That's my freedom. That's my freedom. I'm back in relationship with him and he's the boss. That's my freedom. So that's how I run my race. I'm going to I'm I'm win. So it's not, so the application is that I don't throw off everything that appears to be a fence or everything that appears to be a closed door. I don't just boot it through. Why? Well, because I'm free. That's not it. I run in fellowship with him in submission to his wisdom and his lordship and his direction. And you know what? His ways are higher than mine. And his thoughts are higher than mine. So actually, often, a lot of the time, I don't know what he's doing next. And sometimes I am in confusion because I'm not quite sure. I thought it was going to go that way, but it hasn't. And simply being charismatic and meaning that we prophesy doesn't mean God explains to us what's going to happen every day of the week. It just means sometimes in his mercy he brings revelation of certain things that will really help us that we really need to know. But we have to walk in trust, in faith. So there's that humility of heart. First application. Second thing I would ask is this really. And that, what's your cross? Jesus faced the cross. We don't have to face that. 
But he did say, you will have a cross. And I want to ask, what's yours? Maybe even just ponder for a moment, what is it? What is the thing that you have to pick up, maybe daily, and die to? Because you're a believer. What is it? There will be one. And I want to just ask in light of that, whose will will prevail? There's things in life that are tough and just don't seem to go away. There's breakthroughs, and I love them. There's growth, and I love it. There's maturity. There's answers to prayer. Amen, 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 amen. There's other things, like Paul's thorn in his flesh. You just think, what are you doing that moment? Or the voluntary picking up of something where I have to die to myself... Well, what do I do then? Whose will will prevail? And I want to I want to call on you as disciples of Jesus, those of you that are, to say, Lord, it, I'd much rather it wasn't this way. You can be honest, like Jesus in the garden. But if this is the way it is, not my will. Yours be done. Big. I want to ask you, whose will will prevail? And then finally, I, I want to make this point. For all of our freedom as a nation... And as the West, we do seem to be a nation of slaves. Whether it's to pornography or anxiety, or alcohol, or pleasure, or power, or position, or comfort. We seem to be a nation of slaves. And uh, I want to just, I want to just, I guess, expose really this false freedom. If you knew some of the statistics of the kind of slavery people were in, you'd be horrified. I mean, we'd probably be horrified maybe even if even if everyone in this room suddenly everything was unravelled and spelt out. You'd think, oh, this is real, isn't it? It's real. You know, God forbid that day where we just gather here, sing songs, make a happy noise and go home again. We're here to learn how to be disciples, aren't we? So we can go out and live this thing out by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so we've got to talk about these things. They're these things that enslave us. I want to say this to you. The only way you can get free from the, th- the dark things that enslave you is by becoming just increasingly fully re- resolute and wholeheartedly a disciple and a slave of the light. That you say, I'm going for one master. <gasps> I'm going to just go for it. I'm going to just go for it. Watch what he does. Watch what he does. I'm not pretending that everything will suddenly be broken in an instant. Some will. Some will. Others, God will just say, we've got a journey on this one. I'm going to walk with you and you're going to win. But we are those who overwhelmingly conquer through Christ. And I tell you, there is victory. There is victory from slavery to dark things in Christ. I declare it. And I want to just declare it in a kind of, I don't know how you do it, but I've got to change my tone of voice or something. In a kind of spiritual warfare kind of way. You know, become Texan or something. I don't know. But, you know, I do because I know there will be people sitting here who think, no, there's not. And I want to say, yes, there is. And you jolly well believe me. (laughs) It's God's word. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. The Bible talks about ever-increasing likeness to Jesus Christ. That's freedom. And that's slavery. I want to call you guys that maybe you've never cross that line and say I'm following Jesus I want to call you to freedom and slavery today I'm calling you to freedom from the power of darkness and slavery to Jesus 
and 22 years in, it's wicked. <laughs> it's hard. It's, it's grueling at times. It's confusing at times. It's painful at times. It's never boring. Uh, it's life in all its fullness. It's cross and glory. And I invite you, the Lord calls you to turn away from darkness and follow him. And I, on his behalf, plead with you, beg you, invite you, whatever will work best for you. Get into the kingdom of Jesus. Call on his name. Give your life to him. Follow him. And those of us that have done that, let's keep doing it. Each day as if it were the first. Amen. Amen.